0: Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Episode 59, Woo! the morning after, inching closer and closer to 60. That's a milestone for me. That is a milestone. What are
2: you going to do to celebrate?
1: Uh, probably have a Narragansett like I do every day here with you. <laughs> have a Narragansett and eat some cold pizza that Mike and Judy left. Well, they're very generous to do that. Actually, Jen has been on a, a, a no dairy uh, kind of commit. Not, I'm not going to call
2: it a diet. It was a solidarity it was. attempt. It was, it, was a, um, it was a lifestyle cleanse. For 30 days. Um, As mentioned last week, my dad decided to go on a plant-based diet for health reasons. So I said, sure, I'll do it for 30 days. And during it, I felt pretty snazzy. But let me tell you, eating this freezing cold pizza with coagulated cheese on it is making me so happy. I don't know that I'll speak for the rest of the hour.
1: Welcome back to Dairy, Jen. Thank you. So, so yesterday, actually, Jen and I spent an awesome afternoon with Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Insley at the uh, Eat, Drink, Bloody Mary competition. Uh, so you can guess that we want nothing to do with Bloody Marys today. Ever again. <laughs> and surprisingly, you know, I assumed you know, tasting probably, what, 10 to 15 different Bloody Marys. At least. We would have been absolutely hammered by the end of that. But, but to be honest, I think collectively, I probably just drank one Bloody Mary.
2: Yeah, and also I think the the acidity from the tomato and the spice from all of the various like cured meats and pepper combinations just kept me sort of alert and on edge the entire time. So the vodka never really bled through that (laughs) (laughs) It created a fire
1: barrier. And it was so
2: crowded. I mean, it was a really successful event. We had a fabulous time, but you could barely move through the space. It was great. And what were our our points
1: of, uh, of, like our rating system that we we created? We came
2: up with a five-point rating system, which, uh, pardon me, on a scale of one to five, we were judging these Bloody Marys on uh, creative ingenuity, consistency and viscosity, or lack thereof, and uh, Garnish. So in the end, I believe there were two winners. There was a People's Choice and a Judge's Choice. The People's Choice was um, Barrel and Burger. And the Judge's Choice was Rouge Tamad, which was my favorite. That was my favorite, too. Yeah, so.
1: they did it right. So well done, both of them. I uh, would we'll definitely have some clips that will be a... Uh pulled together for just an exciting little bit about Bloody Mary Day when which is
2: miraculous considering neither of us knew how to use the recording device we used to catch these clips until just the very end. It's
1: okay, we only flubbed like two interviews <laughs> <laughs> with <laughs> very important people. Well, we're just used to talking into these microphones and we not are. not, you know, putting, you know, the recorder in someone's face. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of putting the
2: recorder in someone's face <clears throat>
1: exactly well today's today's guests are, are both out of are all out of state
2: they are it's just me and you and this cold pizza
1: but it you know we want to we want to spread the morning after message uh all over this country all over the world yeah. so i get really excited to to talk to people who are, are doing things with food and, and wine and spirits um in the restaurant industry you know uh, around the country so uh We'll later on chat with uh, Scott Haas in Boston. He's a clinical psychologist and food writer. His new book is "Back of the House: The Secret Life of a Restaurant," and I'm really excited to uh, to just you know talk to him about uh, the psyche of of the back of house. It's n- it's not like a, a book covering you know his experience in a restaurant. It's actually him kind of analyzing uh the psychology, the psychology of the restaurant, of the restaurant and, and and why chefs are the way they are why why food makes us feel the way it does and uh and also uh, earlier in the week I, I sat down incredibly early in the morning for me it was about <laughs> 10 a.m uh i had to get to bushwick by 10 a.m we were all very proud of you i know i mean for most people i'm just complaining about not being able to normal wake life up. exactly <laughs> Um, so I, I met with uh, Brady Konya and uh, Ryan Lang from Middle West Spirits, um, and they are making some awesome heirloom spirits out there in uh, in Columbus, Ohio, using uh, red grain wheat that is mm. specific to where they are, specific to just a few farmers. Um, and they're making some really, really delicious
2: craft spirits. So uh,
1: you'll hear that interview. Hopefully I don't sound like I'm going because no, no,
2: no, no. <laughs> I was so tired. We'll just play some punk music underneath the interview if it gets too slovenly. Th-
1: then it'll <laughs> actually sound like I'm singing. Amazing. amazing. <laughs> but first, a visit it, from the dame. It's that time. It's your
3: favorite story. It's front of house. It's a
2: front of house. Front of house. That lovely segment we all love so. Uh, so again, this week, the dame Joan Plowright, the Baroness Olivier, is with us in studio. She's so generous with her time.
1: I, I really, I think that she she probably only spends her time outside when she comes to Bushwick.
2: I feel like the, the agenda of a dame, of a Baroness, of which she is both, um, must be... Quite packed with garden parties and teas and coronations. It, you know, it's, it's about entertaining. Absolutely. So, thank you, David. I mean, for I watched us. Downton,
1: so I've learned a lot. Downton Abbey has really helped me As learn a lot I. about
2: She <laughs> <laughs> Baroness.
3: I was hired at restaurant X by sheer coincidence. Two weeks previous, I had been mercilessly let go for the petty misstep of spilling a glass of Malo on a patron's white fur. The details of this firing had run together like a dog's pee in the rain. All I remember was my screaming manager, and a seething woman waving her fur in my face, as if the very velocity of this act might bring the poor creature back to life. I'd left with dignity and—I'd left with my dignity intact, stealing two porcelain salt shakers on my way out, and whispering to a table as I did, This place is run by fascists. I'd run home to a bottle of table wine and six-hour marathon of Laverne and Shirley, promising myself as I cried that I'd never work in such a stifling, nefarious dungeon again. Two weeks later, I was awoken from one of my three daily naps and waded through the sea of takeout containers to find my ringing phone. Unemployment had been good to me. I'd relaxed a bit, let go of those troubling hang-ups that plague the working girl, things like hygiene and human contact. The phone was found, and as I answered it, I caught a glimpse of my reflection in my bedroom window. The contrast of my plastic retainer against the unidred of hair that had formed on the right side of my head was a ghastly sight, and as I answered it, I took a swig of a nearby beer bottle. Today was a new day, I reassured myself. Today we march on. On the other end was a former co-worker from the fascist den of iniquity, telling me she herself had left to open a new place in the West Village. We need servers, she said. And I was told I could start the following day. The training was simple, the owners friendly, and the menu impressive but approachable. I made friends quickly with the staff, and as we approached our soft opening, I noticed a change in myself. I was smiling again at last. My gait had shifted to a confident glide. My skin had cleared up from the lack of daily takeout dining. Back at last, I thought. Back at last. Our soft opening was overbooked, and we were told that, in addition, one of our primary investors would be celebrating his birthday that night. An Australian millionaire who looked like a blind, hairless cat, Investor X would be presented a grand three-tiered cake at midnight. A manager would present it, and then I would serve it. As the fateful hour approached, Manager X and I held a powwow behind the bar. "'I'll light the candles in the kitchen,' she said, "'and you will hold a bread plate over them so they don't blow out as we walk.' I nodded my head and applied a fresh swat of lipstick. And with that, the plan was in motion. Manager X and I made our way through the crowded kitchen and retrieved the cake from the walk-in. So far, so good. Candles were lit, and Manager X gathered the monstrous sugar tower in her arms as I walked Legato, just steps ahead with the bread plate. Looking back on it now, I'm almost certain I heard a line cook say, Don't trip and drop it. But as we rounded the corner to the dining room, Manager X's eyes widened, and she wobbled. She'd stepped in a piece of butter that had been left untidied, and as I reached forward to steady her, the wobbling stopped. And she smiled. Close one, I said. And then it happened. Still in the butter, the now steadied foot of Manager X shot out from under her like a log making its way to the surface of a river. The cake and the woman fell first into me, "'then onto the floor. "'The three tiers were smashed into one marshmallowy amoeba, "'the top of which sat silently on the filthy, greasy floor. "'Hello, everyone!' was all I heard next. "'I followed Manager X's eyeline to the door of the kitchen, "'where very important Investor X stood grinning. "'If there is a moment when your fate comes tumbling towards you "'like an uprooted house in a tornado, "'and you sense your physical end, this was that moment. "'But then, as if timed by God herself... "'The general manager, who happened to be strolling by, "'seized Investor X and pulled him into a bear hug "'just long enough for Manager X and myself "'to gather the pile of frosting with our two hands "'and deposit it onto a nearby plate. "'It will never be clear to me if this deus ex machina "'was planned or accidental, "'but I accepted the gift with reverence. "'Investor X was ushered to the back lounge for presents, "'and the top of the hair-covered cake was lopped off, "'reshaped, and presented. "'When I recall these tangles with fate,' The suspended moments in restaurant time, in which my life seems suddenly so small and insignificant in comparison to the fates by which it exists, I know now with confidence that like that smashed-up birthday cake, my talents are best used when stationary. Once put into action, I tend to set off a series of hectic events that threaten the very safety of those around me. So, as I face my retirement this week, I can say to you all, man, woman, and child, You are far safer because of it. So live, I beg you, knowing that my cursed hands will ne'er touch your food again, or spill wine on your beloved fur, or ruin your birthday cake. And for this, dear listeners, we should all be very, very grateful. Goodbye. Goodbye, restaurant world. Adieu. I shall miss you.
1: We'll be right back on the morning after with Scott Haas, author of Back of the House The Secret Life of a Restaurant.
4: You're listening to Andy's Biscuits by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org.
0: Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese, made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com.
1: we're back here on The Morning After. He braved the wilds of Tony Ma's kitchen, Craigie on Main, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Everything he observed was on the record, and he came out alive. <laughs> Psychologist, food writer, dog owner, author of Back of the House, The Secret Life of the Restaurant. Scott House, welcome to The Morning After.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's, it's great to have you here, and I'm I'm glad to hear you're alive and well out there in Boston, snowy, yep. snowy Boston. Yep. And that you've been taking five walks a week, or sorry, have, five walks I have a day. two very
5: beautiful Bernese Mountain Dogs, a father and a son who love this weather and um, have gotten me to love it as well.
1: Do they pull you on a sled?
5: Uh, they pull me. They're not a sled, but I should get a sled. But they're big, and they're assertive, so, you know, I have to. I'm, I'm in good shape. You know I feel saying? like
2: <laughs> you might be able to spearhead Boston's first Iditarod. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Just
1: add that to the list of professions. Absolutely. I will. <laughs> now, uh, you're, you're a clinical psychologist, and you're a food writer, and uh, both, both professions certainly put you in touch with a lot of neurotics,
5: uh, probably less in the in the restaurant world than in the hospitals I work in. Um, my my practice is chiefly divide My clinical practice is chiefly divided between working in urban areas with people of color who are really stressed out by not having enough resources, educational or financial, and then also inpatient where the people are often psychotically depressed or flat out psychotic or post traumatic stress disorder. So in comparison to that, <laughs> restaurant uh, restaurants are highly functional. I mean, people leave their problems, often they leave their problems at the door if they're working in the restaurant, which is part of the appeal, I think, for a lot of people who, like the rest of us, have issues. We all have issues. So the great thing about working in a restaurant, whether you're cooking or waitstaff, is you have something to do. You're scripted. You follow um, uh, a protocol. You follow orders. And you get the job done. So you, it, it's a highly functional group of people. I would not I would not char- characterize them as neurotic, per se.
1: That, that's good to hear, because I've worked in restaurants for... for- for too long. To, uh, <laughs> oh, good.
5: <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, you're, you're, you're there with a group of friends or, or colleagues, or and while you're there, while you're there, you can put your problems, your issues, on the back burner, which is a sweet thing. On the other hand, on the other hand, it's 1 o'clock in the morning and you've been cooking for eight hours or you've been on your feet for eight hours serving occasionally grumpy customers or entitled customers or even nice customers, and it's hard to unwind. So the temptations for people entering the field and often who don't last in the field is at one o'clock in the morning to behave in ways that are dissolute. So it's there's a lot of temptation. So the real temp, the real issue, I think, for people who have longevity in the business is a lot of self-discipline. I mean, Danielle Ballou said this to me in the book, that at the end of the day, um, it's a profession. You're running a business. So if you take a business-like attitude to it, you'll be successful at it.
2: This is a conversation we have often here on the show, because both Jesse and I have worked in the industry for years, and it's 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 it seems simpler than um that then, what we make it, I think mentally you like you say, you finish a shift i've you know done a nine hour shift on the floor, and at the end, you're sitting with bottles and bottles of booze staring mm, in the face, mm-hmm, and there is this mentality of of entitlement. I deserve to drink right now because absolutely. I've put my body through this, and then i've I've watched over the years i've watched friends of mine form incredibly dangerous habits in that world, and I know it exists elsewhere, of course, that's just human nature, but it's so interesting what a petri dish the restaurant world is, and I was wondering <laughs> if. Uh, You know, you you witnessed any of that, and I'm not talking about uh, (laughs) just drinking too much. But, you know, you see... as, as what you do in your daily line of work I'm, I'm really fascinated as to how that applied to people and their and their insecurities and their temptations
5: There were two crash and burn cases at Craig Youngman, one young man, a cook, lovely lovely person um, and I called him Dakota in the book and he ended up developing an addiction to heroin and ended up having to go to detox. In my opinion, Dakota probably would have developed substance abuse no matter where he was, but in the restaurant, um, it the stress was really overwhelming. So maybe he sought out a stressful job that gave him, like you say, the excuse or the, 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 the parameters for choosing to do that. And eventually, of course, the opiates took on a life of its own. And then another chef, actually there were three of them, another cook, um, kind of just flipped out during service, just literally flipped out and took off his apron, you know, and ran out the door, literally ran out the door. Um, you know, I think that the, the the challenge is somehow to moderate stress. I mean, one of the things that chefs are able to do that cooks cannot do is chefs can and take a day off. Chefs can go to the gym. Chefs can call their wife or husband or kids during service. Um, chefs are allowed to tweet and to send email during service. Uh, cooks and wait staff cannot. They'll get fired for that. So the trick is somehow to move yourself up the ladder. You don't want to be 41 years old necessarily in line cooking.
1: I mean, it it's, It wears on the body also.
5: Totally. I mean, I know a lot of chefs and cooks. Um, Silvano Marchetto, who for a long time was cooking at, you know, and now he runs Da Silvano, a wonderful person. I helped him write his cookbook. He developed terrible knee problems because um, he was on his feet all the time. And there's a number of chefs who developed a lot of sh- uh, shoulder rotator cuff problems and, and elbow problems and wrist problems, you know, because it's so much repetitive physical motion. You know, it's funny. Um, a lot of people I meet, who um, cook pretty well for home cooks, say to me occasionally, you know, I'd love to open a restaurant. They don't, <laughs> they don't no understand idea. the incredible repetition that's involved and the fact that restaurant cooking is diametrically opposed to what we do at home.
1: Now, I, I want to know, how did you get Tony to kind of give you all access
5: you know that's a really good question. Um, so he, I don't. You know, here's the deal. Um, there's a, there's a back there's a backstory here. So it turns out that his wife Carolyn was at one time my son's I think soccer coach. So he knew they the family knew my son. Um, I had also interviewed Tony for an article that I wrote for GastroNOMica on sous vide, and we developed a nice con. I hadn't met him, um, but we developed a nice phone relationship. Um, we share a similar, perhaps a similar cultural background. Um, And so um, there was a way in which he felt I was um, someone to be trusted, and he gave me total access. He did not actually read this book until it was in Uncorrected Proofs in November 2012.
1: What, What was his reaction?
5: He said that it was not the book that he thought was going to be written. Um, he um, he asked me back in February 2012 whether he would like the book, and I said, you will not like the book. And he said, well, how can you say that? How come, what, what, what makes you so sure I won't like the book? I said, because you didn't write it. Um, I think there's a lot of chefs, and, and he's one of them, who carry around an idealized version of themselves. And if um, someone does not present to them that same idealized version, it seems somehow um, incorrect. Um, And I think that he was surprised by the version that I presented of him Um, I think that he expected a book to be chiefly about his food and about the psychology behind the dishes that he creates Whereas, I mean, I made it very clear from the beginning that I am a clinical psychologist And I was writing about the psychology of running a restaurant Um, So that's really what, 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 what occurred
1: I mean, it, it, you really do, and in, in in reading the book, I mean, I I really felt like you painted him as a, a really nice man, and I, I and really open and willing, and and happy to teach, and and happy to have you there, and I um I feel like I I have worked for chefs that, you know, seem very closed, and and he seems like a very special person that maybe. Only in his restaurant and only with him could this kind of book be written.
5: I think you're right. I mean, I I think he's a lovely human being. I think that uh, he was surprised. I mean, look, what I also said it to him in November, I said, why don't... He was surprised by the book, and I said, well, you know, why don't you compare it to the other 320-page book that's been written about you? I mean, he, he, I mean, imagine if somebody spent, you know, a year and a half in your life or my life, and the person was a psychologist and a writer, and they spent like three or four days or evenings a week with you or with me. Um, I'm not sure the portrait that would emerge from that kind of experience would be one. I, I certainly would... St- would probably be surprised by what that person wrote about me. So it was a very intimate portrait. I think that, um, you know, when you, when you, inv- when you invite a, a writer, you forget about the psychology part, if you invite a writer into your home, it's really, can be scary. I mean, I, I have a friend who was uh, studying at Princeton. He was there at the same time as Joyce Carol Oates, and it made him very nervous because there would be a certain point during the dinners when she would get very quiet, and he felt like he was being studied. So, I mean, that, there's a danger. When, you, when you're a writer in the family, there's a danger implicit in that.
1: You, you feel like nothing is safe, but he didn't seem to be very guarded about it. Um, he, is, he, is,
5: he is, like many, 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 many high-end top chefs in the country, extremely confident um, to the point where... Um, it, he is of the opinion that, you know, and, and correctly so, that he is arguably, you know, one of the, if, if not the best chef in Boston, one of the, you know, two or three who's, who's, uh, who's the best in the city. So that kind of confidence based on his customer base and based on his longevity, he's been 10 years in the business, uh, lends itself to all sorts of things.
1: Now, After spending as much time as you did there, uh, where do you feel like you fit in in that restaurant? Did you feel like you were a part of the back of the house, or did oh, you yeah, actually feel absolutely, like you, you should have been a I diner? Mean,
5: the, the the cooks, uh, there was there were a lot of cooks who um, really confided in me. One person, Patrick, and I had coffee. There was another person, my absolute favorite, this person named Jill Edwards, who I'm desperately trying to find. I think she's cooking at Roberta's in Brooklyn right now. Your that's um, where we broadcast. That's where we, we're broadcasting from. What's that? That's, that's where, where
1: we're we, broadcasting we broadcast from. Right broadcast now. From Roberta's.
5: Heritage. Yeah, yeah, I think she's at <laughs> Roberta's right now. I mean, um, she's Not just find her. Uh, She's just the best, and um, a lot of people ended up sort of confiding in me. Um, I don't mean like intimate, intimate, but they certainly they were happy to have someone in the restaurant who they felt um, saw their emotional perspectives. Um, I mean, there's a couple sentences in the book where one sentence where Tony yells out at the cooks and says, "I don't want to hear about your problems. Tell Scott because that's what he's paid to listen to. I'm not paid to listen to your problems. I'm I'm here to make sure you get the dinners to the table on time."
1: Well I, I feel like that often happens in it the back of house is kind of run like, like a military operation Absolutely. where there's no emotion and I'm sure that it and I because I know I'm I come from a front of house background but I know how much it means to people when you walk up to them in the back of house and you're like, Hey, thanks for cooking family meal or or, you know, really good to see you because that doesn't always happen in their world in the kitchen. And the hierarchy
5: totally. is it's key. really f- Absolutely, I mean, totally. I mean, it was, like, it was funny because during the writing of this book, I ended up getting about a half a dozen to ten uh, referrals from the United States Coast Guard. And it became really apparent that there were great similarities between being in the military and working in the back of the house. Uniforms, a script, um, a, a clear protocol, a hierarchy. You don't question orders. You don't, you, don't, you don't turn to the chef like one of the guys did and say, um, hey, I need more salt. Um, the chef decides whether it, it, it's done or not. Um, hey chef I, I really have this cool idea for this dish tonight it's like you know what uh, if I wanted to hear what you thought I'd ask you and the, the kind of uh, atmosphere was very similar to the military from what the, uh, the Coast Guard people told me
1: now uh, one of the parts of, of the book that I loved was was that you cooked or you cooked and bought family meal for for the staff. How terrifying was that?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's why I I did both. I mean, there's an unbelievably great square slice pizza restaurant in Boston called Galleria Umberto, and um, unbelievably beautiful Sicilian pizza. So I brought five trays of that to the um, family dinner, and also this beautiful braised pork shoulder. Um, so I, I hedged my bets, but I also, you know, it's exactly what you said, which is, when you do something for folks in the back of the house, they're really appreciative. So the fact that I cooked for them really meant a lot. Um, whether and they're generous. I mean, they're really generous. The food is the food that I cooked was pretty good. I mean, I cook every night, but I mean, I don't by any stretch of the imagination cook restaurant quality food. But on the other hand. Most of the family dinners at Craigie, as is true in any family dinner um, served at any high-end restaurant, it's not, it's not the kind of food that they're serving to guests anyway.
1: No, it's dough. No, thank God. Pork fat <laughs> floating in right. white it's, rice. You know,
5: macaroni and cheese, chili, it's you know, just something to fill up the people for six, seven hours so they don't get hungry while they're cooking.
1: Now, if, now if I'm going to Boston, maybe not tomorrow, but, but you know, next week, where, where should I eat?
5: I love Galleria Umberto, the, the pizza place in the north end on Hanover Street. It, it's epic. It's only open from 11:30 until they sell out of pizza. Um, I love a new place that opened in July called Yakitori Zai. Z a i. It's in the south end. It's a wonderful. You might as well, I was in Tokyo last week, and you might as well be in Tokyo eating at Yakutori Zai, except for the fact that they don't shout a greeting as they do in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like um, East Coast Grill. It's kind of fun. It's cute. It's not. It's not. You know. It's not going to change your life to eat there, but it's pretty wonderful. Um, I like, you know, it sounds corny, but I really like Legal Seafood for their chowders, and it's uh, a dependable. They're, they're, the quality of their product is great. Um, those are some places that come to mind.
1: Can you still... Do you still like to go eat at Craigie? I never really ate
5: there to begin with. Um, <laughs> I ate there, I think, a total of four times during the entire 18 months. Um, I'm someone... Who, I mean, I love what he's doing, but my preference is... The food I cook at home and the food that I eat when I'm on the road is Italian, Italian-American, and Japanese. That's pretty much what I eat. I love fish and vegetables. I mean, you know, you talk about restaurants. My favorite restaurant in New York is Esca. I'm there at least seven or eight times a year. I love what Dave is doing. I love Carmelini's food at Locanda Verde. I love the Dutch. And he's got um, a new
1: spot opening, Lafayette.
5: I know. I'm really excited about Lafayette. I've known Andrew forever and ever. I met him on this uh, junket that Danielle Balu had organized about ten years ago in Tokyo. We formed it, all of us formed a sort of an insane bond because we were in Tokyo with Danielle for five nights and nobody slept. Um, I mean, those are the kinds of places I like. Um, you know, like I say, simple. I love um, uh, Lupa is one of my favorite places. Mm-hmm. I love Omen. Um, so I, I really like good, simple you know food that i can I, I don't like to eat a lot of pork i don't like to have a lot of ingredients on the plate um so you know um that's, but that's that's a person it's not a question of good or bad it's just a personal perspective i mean probably my favorite restaurant at the moment on the planet is Aska. i just think what he's doing there is just so smart and so good
1: I, I loved the the kind of uh, back and forth between you and Tony about where to go eat. <laughs> Neither it was you very really funny. Decide. I mean, you know,
5: but part of it is that, you know, part of it is that, you know, it, it's the same with many chefs because Tony, like most chefs I know, they don't get out much because they're, you know, and Tony has the one restaurant. He's opening a second restaurant in Somerville. So when he gets out, he wants to eat, you know, at a lot of places and he wants to have really gutsy food that is informing his way of cooking. Um, I eat out, I mean, I don't i don 't eat out a lot, but I eat out more than he does, and i 'm constantly eating in Manhattan, so um, I have my favorite place oh the other place is sushi Yasuda, which I think is really wonderful i
1: 've never been, but that is like that 's on my like top of my list
5: it's, You should definitely go go there for lunch, sit at the counter. Yasuda San is gone uh, he 's now in Tokyo, but the replacement is wonderful, and it 's not expensive if you order right i mean it 's really not it 's not cheap it 's like fifty bucks a person, but you have like eight different courses of sushi it 's not bad.
1: Scott, it's been so great to have you on the show. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks a million for having me. The book is called Back of the House. Check it out; you'll love Thank it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thanks, Scott. We'll be right back with Middle West Spirits.
0: You're listening to Home of Empty. You're listening to Home of Emptiness.
4: Pamela Royal on dot
0: Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world, and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably minded businesses that support us to become a member visit heritageradionetwork.org network.org today
1: Welcome back on the morning after in studio with me today Brady Konya General Manager and Ryan Lang, distiller owner of Middle West Spirits in Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, guys.
6: Good morning. Thank you, Thank you for having us.
1: So, Columbus, while well, it doesn't seem that far away from New York City, um, you know, you're not you're not local boys here. What are you? What are you? What are you guys doing in New York right now? And and repping your your Middle West Spirits brand?
4: Uh, we, we were out for uh, we're out for the whole week uh, out with friends of ours that own other. Uh, craft uh kind of production businesses uh beers ice creams um uh, i think coming out here and, and talking about this uh this idea of a distinctive sense of place in the things that producers make um so again whether it's spirits like what middle makes or uh, ice cream uh jenny Britton bauer i think has been on your show she before owns, yeah. uh jenny uh jenny splendid ice creams uh and rock mill brewery a good friend of ours that does belgian uh ales out of central ohio um all of us are out here Meeting with uh, publicists and, and uh, 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 category officials and anybody that will listen to our story and, um, uh, and hopefully um, enjoy the idea of tasting things here in New York that are unavailable here and made in the, the heartland.
1: So what, so what is it about Ohio that has cr- kind of created all of y- you artisans um, you know, in, in the, the beer world, in the spirits world, uh, in the ice cream world?
4: I think it's the absence of both mountains and water. <laughs> we, uh, we uh, you know, a lot of folks are, I think, surprised just how strong the uh, culinary chops are out in, in Columbus. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, I'm originally from Seattle. I've been out, okay. in, uh, out, in, out in Columbus. Like so many people were, were transplants from other major cities uh, living out in uh, central Ohio. Um, and because we don't have some of those, I think more, uh, you know, some of those natural resources that mm-hmm. we've all kind of grown up with, um, we really focus on the things that we can, do well and 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 food is definitely one of them um i also think that there's a there's a uh, kind of an unabashed um uh um, unapologetic willingness to really focus on you know a moment of flavor in your mouth as opposed to a plate full of average and when you know it's butter butter buttermilk in your ice cream and vodkas that taste like something and Mm -hmm. um angus beef and you know we we love our, our our food not as an art but as a craft
1: so tell me how you guys got started with Middle West Spirits.
6: Uh, yeah, Brady and I met in 2007 in Columbus. We're both transplants. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. And, uh, yeah, I know, really, the heartland <laughs> of not, Pennsylvania. You're not my corn <laughs> fed Mid- Midwest
1: boys. I thought, I, thought that you were.
6: And uh, we uh, we met over a couple dinners and, and started to develop the idea of developing the distillery. Um, it's uh, something that my family's done for a long time. In the United States, albeit all legal, they don't do it anymore. But... Uh, <laughs> We basically have our chops from Roots of Moonshining in Pennsylvania. Got it. And uh, when we decided to do something like this, we we took it to the next level. We went and we worked with um, some pretty brilliant people in Austria and Germany that know how to distill uh, what would be considered schnapps. Uh, Very, very, very talented people. And um, then we just took that and applied it to our story in ohio and what brady had talked about with the agricultural scene and trying to source local trying to find as much as we could local and uh we did that we were able to identify a couple grain producers that allowed us to make all of our spirits from ohio grain which is kind of rare because most people um most people just purchase a lot of their pre-made spirits and then they they rectify it or they bottle it and we didn't want to build that uh that kind of business so it's a lot more expensive but we think it's the right way to do things
1: and what, what kind of array of, of, of products are you distilling or making?
6: Uh, we started with Ohio Soft Red winter Wheat And it became the base for a lot of our clear spirits, our vodkas uh, And then we also started working with that into a whiskey Which is kind of a rare whiskey um, Soft Red winter Wheat whiskey is done by maybe three or four companies in the United States uh, It's often not used as a distillate because it's very delicate and soft And it doesn't necessarily stand the test of time to a barrel A barrel will overrun it pretty quick um, but after we started working with that, then we pulled in rye, grain and corn and everything that we could from the area. Um, and it's, you see five sitting in front of you now and there's, there's another six or seven planned. So.
1: And it, it's very clever. The, uh, the name is yeah. <laughs> You guys are clever. Uh, so really one of the processes that I, that I have a hard time understanding is distillation. Can mm-hmm. you kind of walk us through that?
6: Yeah, sure. Um, First and foremost, you you want to take grain and unlock the grain. There's starch in every grain, and there's sugar in that starch. So quite simply, you want to ferment that down with yeast. So we break it down with heat and water, any grain bill profile you want to work with. If you want to make bourbon – The United States government says it has to be at least 51% corn in your mash bill. So let's say you're putting 3,000 pounds of grain in a ton, a lottering ton or a mash ton. Uh, 51% of what goes into that has to be corn. Um, But you take that, heat it up, break it down, feed yeast to it, and over the course of 3 to 10 days – that yeast will eat the sugar that you've created through the grain uh, and it will give you two products, ethanol alcohol, and it will give you uh, carbon dioxide. You then place that into a still, any still design that you like, um, and then you heat it again and alcohol that you want to consume has a lower boiling point than water. Uh, it boils at 172 degrees Fahrenheit. Water boils at 212. You raise the temperature of that mash above 172. The alcohol will boil out of the mash. You can collect it and the water remains wow. and that's distilling. So, in a nutshell,
1: and and that's true for all for all spirits. Mm-hmm. It is so it just depends on on the grain, the starch that you're using.
6: It's the grain, the starch, the yeast, the water, and then actually the profile of the still. If you adjust the still at all, it will adjust the way that the product comes out. So,
1: is there? Um, I, I come from a wine background. Is there ever like a, a naturally occurring yeast that that will be present in the grain, so you don't even have to add anything?
6: Um, not really. Often,
1: often that happen, That can happen in wine.
6: Yes. Uh, what What is naturally occurring in grains that actually help it ferment out is, is an enzyme. An enzyme from barley, usually, uh, malted barley, uh, mm-hmm. will help break the starch down to sugar so you can feed it to yeast. Um, there are, I guess, there's two sides of the fence. Most distilleries, most breweries harvest their yeast to create a single-strain yeast that makes their alcohol
1: and is specifically unique to them
6: correct and unique to them and unique for the product so a lagering yeast or an ale yeast and you don't necessarily want native yeast to start to interfere with that because it will create off flavors um, that you don't necessarily want in your finished distillate some distilleries build themselves for that though Um, they will actually leave their fermenters wide open So the native yeast from the building or the area that they're in will float into the building. They will get into the mash, and they will create a a distinct sense of place for that specific distillery. Um, We do that to a certain degree, but our volumes are getting to such a place that we we can't do that anymore. Um, But the yeast is picked for the product. So
1: We were... Talking before before the show about um, about how you maintain a completely different flavor in in your in your vodka. Can you can you let me know about that again, or let let the listeners know because I can't hold on to that information all by myself.
4: So so coming from a wine background, you you I mean we're we're speaking preaching to the choir, but. When you honor a grain in distillation the same way that you do a wine grape, um, and you, you recognize that, um, that that flavor profile is a reflection of not only who produces it, but where they source their materials from, it really goes to the heart of what we think the promise of the kind of the boutique distilling movement is, which is capturing those, those flavors that are distinctive for their place of origin. And for us, that soft red winter wheat and 180 mile radius of about 1,000 farms in northwest Ohio um, is our Napa. Valley of, of grain, and we go to great lengths of ensuring that we have, you know, consistency and quality and and flavor profile as a result of clay composition in a particular area or particular region um, that allows us to generate a yield based on sugar uh, uh, sugar that's in the grain and uh, and the proteins that result in the flavor in the in the spirit. Um, but, you know, in a, in a category and vodka for so many of us that have grown up here has always been about being neutral. And, and certainly by definition here, it's odorless, yeah, it's a colorless and spirit. flavorless. Yeah. And we've largely only been drinking it here since uh, post World War Two, 1950s, late 1940s. Um, but vodka has been around for six centuries and they weren't you know filtering these through uh, you know puff daddy's diamond <laughs> jewelry it's box cerak yeah and uh, um, and you know there is a place for those vodka's the number one selling category of spirits in the US is a massive market as well as these flavored uh, gummy bear confection uh, forward extract based flavored vodkas like um, cotton
1: candy cotton candy
4: and <laughs> Mountain Dew and um, and you know if, if those didn't sell they wouldn't be made and, and we have a great contradiction in the U.S. around our you know our allegiance to flavor most people that come over here don't understand the, the vodka craze that we have here um, in terms of the flavor uh, the flavor parts um, but what they do understand is that Americans are addicted to flavor um, and the contradiction is is that traditional vodkas those Russian And Polish vodkas that have been around for centuries are anything but odorless, colorless, and flavorless. Um, And I think you know the whole the whole great experiment of Middle West Spirits was how do you honor that tradition in an American made product and focusing on those flavors of the fields that are authentic to our history and our heritage. So, so. So, I mean, in a nutshell, this—the vodka, the OYO—is um, an expression of soft wheat, and not just soft wheat, but our wheat in Northwest mm-hmm. Ohio, and it tastes completely different than wheat uh, sourced from any other state or any other corner of Ohio. It smells a little fruit forward, like a tequila at the front end. Um, it's got a very soft, round body with vanillins and kind of caramels uh, in the center, and it finishes soft like a sake, despite the fact that it's uh, 32 times distilled. You know, it's a, it's an exceptionally soft and uh, it's been described as having like a an unctuousness or a roundness to its body that I think really blows people away when they first had it because it isn't, it doesn't it's have that isopropyl kind of alcohol mm-hmm. nose mm-hmm. to it. Um, and it is, by definition, a traditional vodka.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we basically distill it as if it were a whiskey. So we make real deep cuts on the runs, uh, the front of a run and the back of a run when it, the product comes out of the still are not necessarily desirable um, so we take that apart. Um, because we do batch runs, we can eliminate them by taste and flavor. And we literally taste every single batch uh, and make sure that it when it comes out, it's just the middle. So we lose about 30 to 40% of our runs traditionally. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, but it, it lets the product sing a little bit more.
1: I mean, it's a sipping vodka, mm-hmm. and that's not... That's really not where my mind goes when I when I think vodka immediately. Um, so we're talking about flavored vodkas. You actually do have two in front of us here.
4: Yeah. Well, it's so funny when when Ryan and I go out and we kind of talk about the story and we bring out. We've got uh, classic infusions, like seasonally inspired infusions, um, which which fall in the flavored vodka category. Um, and by every definition, they are manufactured to spec as a flavored vodka. It's regulated very very tightly at the federal level. Um, but when you start when you start the process um, and you think about a spirit as a food, as opposed to a liquor, a manufactured liquor, I think the result of what you end up with, you, you end at a very different place. And, and I think that the two seasonal infusions that we've we've produced so far are a really great example of that, um, where we take this full flavor, um, soft red winter wheat uh, vodka, and we pair it with fresh, all-natural, locally sourced ingredients, um, which again is kind of an extension to our story of, of those flavors that are exceptionally, uh, or that are exceptional for for our region, um, but we, we we've never aspired to be a flavored vodka company because flavored vodkas and certainly what's so, so popular are based on extracts and, and artificial you know contributions to the to the final product and and, and, and they're not inspired as culinary products're they're not they're not uh, the recipes aren't time tested and honored traditions. Uh, very few of them have ever been served at James Beard as some of our, our products have. Um, uh, and that's a great honor, not to be blended in a cocktail, but served all by themselves. Now, that being said, I'll tell you, if our spirits don't blend, we go out of business. Um, because the vast majority of people here in, in the U.S. want to be able to apply that into some kind of beverage. And for, the, uh, for, for our great, you know, we're very fortunate, um, in this, you know, between Ryan and I, um, to have kind of <clears throat> overlap in not only our palates, but, um, uh, but uh, uh, I think in our skills and experiences and being able to take the these spirits out into market and what we would call flavor map them um, in bars and restaurants and with retail consumers. And you know how do you use a vodka that responds to a cocktail in the way that a gin, a tequila, or a whiskey might? Um, it certainly doesn't imply that it's not versatile. It just requires you to approach the cocktail with context. Um, you
1: have to be a little more creative about it yeah
4: but you end up with something that as opposed to a neutral and cranberry juice which basically is hot cranberry juice (laughs) you end up having something that has that produces a whole third flavor and I think when you talk about the renaissance of clear spirits behind the bar and the exhaustion that most bartenders have around vodka in particular I mean some days it feels like you're no more than a planet smoothie you know you're working in a planet smoothie when you're just blending fruit juices Mm -hmm. and with something like this it brings that whole idea of complexity and richness and um and uh versatility in in a clear spirit in the way that you, you had to go to gin before um and this is a uh you know it is based in a great american tradition
1: on your website you have a huge list of of recipes um that you guys have put together what's what's your favorite right now
4: Oh, gosh, it's a, you know, it's, it's like picking a child. <laughs> 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 Everybody's Do like, what's it. your you favorite, must. what's your favorite spirit? Well, okay, I think you that, don't
1: have to pick your favorite, but uh, how about something seasonally appropriate? Well,
4: I think so. So, you know, last night was a great example. You know, we, we kind of paired uh, a combination of different foods um, uh, at a menu down at a, at a, at a great kitchen downtown. Um, and we entered with uh, something that was a little sweeter, that was, be, was to be paired with fish. Um, we used the stone fruit, the Ohio stone fruit, uh, as the base spirit. Stone fruit, of course, is anything with a pit, a fruit with a pit. Um, and our stone fruit, as opposed to a cherry vodka... The stone fruit is anchored around a tart cherry, uh, rounded out with a little bit of distilled almond, um, introduced with apricot and wildflower honey, and finishes dry with hibiscus flower and sweet yellow peach. So you have a spirit that starts sweet, Mm -hmm. transitions to tart, and finishes dry, again, as opposed to a cherry vodka. And that was used as the base. Uh, We paired that with a a little bit of fresh blood red orange. uh, Bitters and an ounce of uh, egg white, um, shaken hard, and you get a twist on uh, a vintage sour, right? But it's uh, it's got that very fruit forward base, and again, it's a flavor profile that nobody's ever had before. Um, that's probably my favorite in terms of kind of the the more fruit forward sweet mm-hmm. note. And I tend to drink sweeter during summer. Yeah. Not right? it's it, yeah, <laughs> this one over here to my right drinks everything straight, you know, and that's in some ways as a purist, you know, I would expect nothing less from our head distiller and my 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 creative partner on the production side to always want to have everything in its purest moment. But for me, the other side of the business is i've got to spend my whole life really focusing on how you adapt this to the way that most people drink it while we help them uh help create that context around why you would drink it neat in the first place second part of that is uh whiskey um so in addition to the infusions we obviously you know ryan and i spend every waking hour of the day trying to sell enough bottles to buy more barrels um so Mm -hmm. we can put those back because the i think our great passion and the future of our business long term will have a a big foot footprint in the dark spirits. Um, One of my favorite uh, cold winter cocktails would be uh, something like a hot toddy. Um, They're very easy to make and of course there's no particular recipe for a toddy. It's also been around for uh, about 300 years um, with lots of great uh, uh, stories about the origination and whether or not it came from the Indies um, uh, or through trading routes through the British Isles Um, but there's always something sweet like a sugar. Uh, There's always something um, uh, a little citric like a, a lemon mm-hmm. and a dark spirit, <clears throat> and you can balance those to taste. But uh, something like uh, uh, the uh, wheat whiskey with um, some sage infused wildflower honey and a little bit of lemon, um, I could drink that you know, I could have four or five of those a day. <laughs> just, <laughs> Not to know, say that I have. Of, instead of coffee, but, yeah. just <laughs> wake
1: up and have your toddy. Amazing. Um, so, you guys are working on uh, getting your product into the New York market. Um, is there anywhere that, that we can purchase any of this in New York at the moment or should we go online at the moment?
4: So, so I mean, our our great hope this next year is that that we'll be in New York in a you know in a way that makes sense for the the size and kind of scope of our company, mm-hmm. which isn't in every back bar in Manhattan. It just doesn't happen that way for 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 companies like ours. Um, uh, but if somebody wanted a bottle today, it would be as easy as clicking on our website, and we drop ship it straight from uh, from a Kentucky warehouse. Um, so, and all of our products sell online and can be shipped. Um, but you know, f- for for a craft company like Middle West, we really have to start behind the bar, generate the desire for our products behind the people that know what they're doing, mm-hmm. and generate the excitement and enthusiasm from neighborhoods and from the the craftsmen behind the bar that know the difference between quality and a gimmick. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think you're going to see you know Ryan and I out here a lot over the next three to six months, trying to build those relationships. Um, that you know, the dinner that we were uh, here for this week a big part of it is just being able to tell our story to people that have um uh bigger voices in the community than ours like yours the morning <laughs> after um that have listeners that care that, that 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 understand that you know that they're you know that if they were to buy a uh, micro brew and uh pay 60% more for a bottle and then to find out that it was bottled by Budweiser or that it was you know it was bud basically in a fancy apothecary inspired beer bottle that they would be offended and and it's the great secret in distilling right now um that's the vast majority of micros that are opening um, um, and in fact, if if they don't buy most of their spirits pre-made and market them as local, um, some of these indie brands don't even have distilleries. Um, yet they, you know, they're largely marketing companies with with great uh, marketing stories, with pretty bottles, and a price point that that sticks. Um, and for for Middle West and and you know uh, maybe thirty thirty percent of the new uh, micros that are out there that are actually producers making things from scratch and honoring the craft of. of of traditional spirit-making, um, you know the semantics of, of the, the marketing of micro and small batch and handcrafted and artisan, um, there's so little regulation there, it's, it's very difficult for us to go out and compete. But I will tell you that um, when, we, when you achieve a certain level of quality and recognition around um, the quality of the spirits that you produce, whether it's a tech, it's an international jury review, um, or it's, a, it's an honor like James Beard, um, when you are the producer and you own that product from from the day it came out of the ground, right, it's something we're really proud of, um, as opposed to knowing that that award should have gone to somebody else in your supply chain. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I think that paired with the fact that to be a producer, it costs us anywhere from 30 to 60% more per bottle to actually make this stuff from scratch. You know, we've. I think that's why you see Ryan and I spend so many, so much of our limited resources out talking, not about OIO and Middle West, but using that as a tool to help educate people about the the great kind of time honored craft of 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 producing spirits from scratch. Um, So, over the next five to ten years, is this wave of small kind of micro brands come out that 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 retail consumers, like all of us, have are better equipped with tools to distinguish kind of the, 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 you know, the phonies from the, um, from the real, the real deal. So
1: the website is a middlewest com. It is check it out guys. Ryan Brady. Thank you so much for coming in. I I can't (laughs) wait to have you back when, uh, when you're behind the bar at Roberta's or something.
4: It's crack a bottle. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: This is the morning after.
0: You're listening to "This Body" by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network
2: Back, it's that time after. Oh, it's that time, all right. After two fabulous interviews and um, a rather emotional front of house, we would like to leave you um, with a perkier feeling, and that, of course, is what is on the menu at Chardonnays.
3: Mm-hmm. What's on the, menu at
2: Chardonnay? the world wants to know. So, as we said before, Jesse and I spent a fun-filled afternoon yesterday at the event called Eat. Eat, drink, and Bloody Mary. So we were talking this morning, and we really would like to uh, figure out what would be on the menu at Chardonnay's brunch, Bloody Mary's edition.
1: You know, Chardonnay's is probably most popular at brunch. Oh,
2: no doubt. They definitely do four full turns. Four full turns. There's two day hostesses and every single drink that is served at brunch is pre-made. It was made the night before with and garnishes that were left over from dinner service. And all the eggs are scrambled or over hard. Absolutely. Or they come from a carton. All right. So what is our
1: Chardonnay's Bloody Mary?
2: I'm going to say our Bloody our Chardonnay's Bloody Mary is made of the following ingredients. Canned V8 juice. mm Um. Tiny, crushed ice. So Uh, it melts faster. So it melts faster. Day-old celery, um, black, small ground pepper, a little bit of Tabasco, some sugar, and then a uh, Skulls vodka and kosher salt rim, garnished with a wedge of lemon that was left over from the buyout the night before.
1: I mean, basically unidentified. Unidentifiable citrus fruit Yes Could it be grapefruit? Maybe Doesn't matter Are you going to drink it? Yeah you
2: are Because you're hungover I mean, it, it just sounds so refreshing and, and so awakening. Mark Forgione had a good point yesterday at the event. He said, you know, I feel like this event would only be properly judged if everyone were actually hungover, because that's when you drink Bloody Marys. <laughs> as it, a requirement. Yeah, it was a bunch of chipper, sober people like, I'm really enjoying this beverage as opposed to an actual brunch where everyone's sort of silently sipping their Bloody Mary with bloodshot eyes and, you know, sweaty palms.
1: And and eating all the garnish first because and they're e- starving. Eating the There's garnish. a pit in their stomach.
2: Oh, I forgot in our What's on the Menu at Chardonnay is Bloody Mary. I'm pretty sure there's a blue cheese pitted olive that has been marinating since i'm going to say 2004 i believe the term is brining brining you're correct
1: all right well this has inspired me and i'm positive jen to to create
2: the brunch cocktail list for chardonnays we're going to create actually the entire menu and we're going to announce it i think on our 60th episode there you go
1: 60th episode which is next sunday we got to get to work all right so tune in thank you so much the morning after on heritageradionetwork.org.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio Network.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.